0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel, and I'm talking today with Vicki Neal, author of Why Study Mathematics, published in 2020 by London Publishing Partnership. The choice of whether to embark on a university degree or an accreditation program can involve a mix of excitement and apprehension, or of duty, apathy, and a range of other feelings. The one certain component may be uncertainty, if not about the choice of program, then about what it truly entails. How can we know, how should we know, whether a mathematics program is one we'll enjoy or help us achieve other goals? While we can't expect answers, the best advice gives us both the relevant information and the means to sort through its implications. Dr. Neil's comprehensive and compact book does exactly this, and I look forward to learning about its core ideas from the author. Vicky, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. To begin with, could I ask a bit about your own mathematical background, or to to explain a bit about your own mathematical background, and how it led you to concern yourself with, with the experience of choosing a degree program in mathematics?
2: Uh, yeah, sure. So I guess uh, a long time ago, I was a 16, 17 year old trying to decide what to do next. And and actually, for me, that felt like quite an easy decision because I liked maths lots more than I liked the other things that I've been studying. So it felt quite natural to me to apply to do that at university. Um, and I was fortunate enough to spend three years doing maths um, as a student in Cambridge, and then wasn't ready to stop learning maths. So in fact, did a master's and then a PhD. Um, in additive number theory, which sort of coincidentally was also in Cambridge. Um, And during my time as a student, during my time as an undergraduate and a graduate student, I got more and more interested in mathematics education, and outreach and working with young people, giving them kind of exciting mathematical opportunities to complement what they were doing in school. And I guess that's the direction my career has taken since then in in various different ways. So I've had a few different roles in Cambridge and I've been at the University of Oxford for the last seven years now. Gosh, that's a long time. Um, And my focus is on teaching undergraduates, um, on working with groups of teenagers in various different ways. Um, I've been involved with the Promise Europe summer programme which is kind of uh, related to Promise, the Promise program in Boston, that, that they're like our parent program. So I've been involved with running that for the last few years, a, a kind of residential program for super keen high school students. But I also go and visit schools and volunteer with the UK Mathematics Trust and all sorts of different things. Kind of, um, I'm really interested in that interface between school and university. That's quite an interesting stage of people's lives. And I guess it's my privilege to be able to work with students and be alongside them as they're going through that process.
1: And so it seems to set you up very well as the author of this book, which um, I should mention is part of a Why Study series by the LPP. Do you want to say a word about the series itself and how you came to contribute to it?
2: Yeah, the the London Publishing Partnership um, had this idea for a series of Why Study dot 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 books. And it's one of those things where they got in touch with me and said, we're thinking of doing this. What do you think? And my first thought is, but surely this exists already because... This seems like the kind of thing that somebody would have done, but it doesn't seem like they have done exactly this. So um, I was delighted that they, they got in touch with me about writing a mathematics book. It, it seemed like the kind of book that ought to exist. And I was very happy to contribute. And um, the, the history book came out just before mine. There's geography and, and various other subjects in the pipeline as well. So um, hopefully, I guess it would be great to think of schools having the whole set as well as maybe individual students being able to look at topics that interest them.
1: And now we've been a bit implicit about uh, who the series is intended for. So let me ask you explicitly, who is the target readership and what were your own goals in writing the book?
2: When I was writing it, I had in mind a few different audiences with, I think, overlapping interests, but different perspectives, if I can put it that way. So one group is certainly those 15, 16, 17 year olds who might be making their decisions about what they want to do after school. And do I want to go to university? And if so, what do I want to study? And those kind of questions. Um, But I also had in mind those students, parents and families, because those people are really important when people are making decisions. And I know that if um, people haven't been to university themselves or maybe went to university but studied something different, it could be hard to know. Actually, what are the career opportunities if you do a degree in this or what might it be like to study that? And so they might be looking for additional information as they're supporting people. Um, There are, of course, mature students who are later in life and thinking about going to university who come with a different kind of set of agendas. But are also, it's a big commitment at that point to think, do I really want to spend three or four years of my life doing this? Um, And then the final group I really had in mind is teachers in schools who are, of course, supporting students as they're making these decisions. And I'm conscious, for example, that there are lots of fantastic mathematics teachers in schools and colleges who didn't themselves study maths at university. Um, They might have studied physics or engineering or computer science or all sorts of things that leave them really well equipped to teach maths um, at school or college, but it might be hard for them to advise about a maths degree or even just there are so many different maths degrees out there that even if the teacher studied one particular one, it can be hard for them to have a sort of sense of the variety of those. So I hope that the book might be useful for teachers as well to be able to dip into and then sort of pass on advice
1: when they're supporting their students. So that is in fact a great segue into the subject of chapter one, which you title What's in a maths degree? Um, This chapter was a good reminder for me um, that mathematics degrees as a whole are a much more varied than a pre-university student is likely to be aware of. So uh, from the perspective of a prospective university student, what should one be aware of? What should one be attuned to as they look into university math programs?
2: Yeah, I think this is something that I really wanted to get front and center because I think Maths is one of those subjects that we all have to do at school and then some of us might choose to do more of at school, Um, but we've all done some maths at school and therefore might think that we know what's in a maths degree, whereas we might not have studied some other subjects at school that we might then be interested in at university. So I know talking to colleagues who teach some subjects at university, their goal is to kind of even highlight the existence of their subject to school students who may not really know that it's out there whereas maths we don't have that we you know everybody is doing maths at school but actually maths at school doesn't necessarily give you a sense of that huge variety of maths at university and the different kind of flavours that are out there so i think one of the things that i was really keen to try to help students appreciate is that diversity of maths programs at university because you have to choose the one that's good for you. I mean, even if you think, oh, yes, I'd really like to do a maths degree, how do you then find the right programme that suits your interests and your strengths and so on? And the book is called Why Study Mathematics? Because, you know, the cover's only so big and it has to fit. But I'm, I'm interpreting mathematics here in the broadest, most inclusive sense I can, sort of mathematical sciences. So definitely including statistics, definitely including operational research, which is Uh, a really important and interesting topic, but quite mysterious, I think, for a lot of people at school. Certainly, I'd never heard of it when I was at school. Um, And even within degrees that are called mathematics, they can differ a lot. They can be more kind of practical, focused, sort of connecting with industry. They can be more theoretical, looking at the underpinnings of the subject. They can have more scope for specialisation or less scope for specialisation, applications in different directions. And I think it's just... It is, it's maybe a little bit overwhelming for somebody applying to university to think, gosh, there's all of that out there. How do I choose? Well, hopefully this book might help them choose. But but I think it's good to be aware of that variety so that you don't just go, oh, well, I want to do a maths degree and then just tick the box for the maths degree kind of thing. You find the right program that's going to play to your strengths and and grab your attention, I guess.
1: Yeah, you're right that there's an incredible diversity even in the names used by these programs. Um, Although, I'm not sure how it differs in the UK into the US, and that's something that I was gonna, that I preface in my question about the next chapter, looking into one's options for study. There's a great deal of of information here about the administration and the logistics of UK math programs. Uh, But since we reach an international audience, I thought maybe I should ask if you could talk in general about what uh, a prospective student should learn about the available curricula and professional resources uh, in their region or in the programs that they're considering.
2: Yeah, you're right. Of course, these systems vary hugely across the globe, and and the, the I guess the where where it has to be specific. This book is kind of specific for the UK, but I think lots of the principles are kind of similar. So just trying to ask as many questions as you can about the syllabus. Also questions like, when am I going to have options? What is compulsory? And when do I start being able to choose? Because I think that can vary quite a lot between programmes. Questions about the mode of teaching, questions about the mode of assessment. Am I going to do lots of coursework? Am I going to do lots of exams? Am I going to be doing all of my work by myself? Or will I be collaborating? Do I have opportunities to work with industrial partners? Is there a math society where I can hang out with other maths people if I want to? Um, so lots of those kind of questions I think are applicable wherever somebody might be looking Um, and I guess in an international context is also sort of thinking about the qualifications that people have already done and am I going to find myself redoing lots of things because actually my qualification means I've already done quite a lot of this or are there gaps that I'm going to want to fill in before I start my program because actually my particular qualification hasn't done so much. There's quite a lot of variety to think about there I guess.
1: It occurs to me that especially for students going into or seeking to go into a program that extracts them from their own, from their existing social networks, networking can be a very important part of succeeding or even enjoying a math program. And so I did want to ask specifically about societies, chapters of professional organizations, but maybe there are other resources that are worth zeroing in on when you want to build a solid network of colleagues yeah. at wherever you are.
2: Well, I think societies can be really helpful. And some students don't really want to spend their extracurricular time, I guess, in the math society, they have sport commitments or musical commitments or hanging out with friends commitments. And that's totally fine. But I think math societies can be a really nice way of making connections with other people who have those interests. And I think one of the kinds of networks it's really good to have is not only peers who are maybe the same same age as you taking the same courses as you. Those are good peers to have because you can work together and collaborate. but I think knowing some people who are a year or two or three ahead of you along that trajectory can be really useful for just getting tips on how does this work you know if I if I have to make these decisions about options ne- next year, how is that going to work? If I'm interested in applying in this career to this career path or interested in applying for further study, how does that work? And and of course, universities are set up to provide those through formal structures. But I think often peers who are just a little bit further ahead can be really useful for giving some of that kind of informal guidance
1: and, and helping people feel settled in their environment as well. And would you say reciprocally... And um, being open to forming uh, peer relationships with younger mathematicians in your program or in similar programs can benefit not only them but yourself as a mentor, as an as a um, someone who can help open doors and someone who learns what doors can be opened, what connections to make by virtue of being in part responsible for other people accessing them.
2: I think that's right, and I think I think often the the mentor can learn as much as the mentee in that kind of relationship and I'm thinking within Oxford for example and I know this is the case in lots of places we have opportunities for our students to be involved in outreach working with kind of high school students in various different formats and that's a fantastic way of developing communication skills for example and it's the kind of thing that can look really good you potentially on a kind of application for your next opportunity is well actually I've been able to develop my communication skills by doing a podcast or uh, meeting students at open days or running a workshop or organising hands-on activities for seven-year-olds or whatever it may be. And I think working with younger students on the same course as you can, can also help with communication skills, teaching skills, all of those kind of things, as well as just being a really satisfying thing to do. I think it's a, it's a rewarding thing for people to be able to help the next generation as they've been helped themselves, perhaps.
1: Yeah, well said. So your next chapter is one that I think is vitally important. You title it, Who Can Study Maths? And this addresses a variety of questions, each one of which I thought was vital in its own way. And I couldn't narrow it down myself, so I'm gonna be a little bit rude and ask you um, to take the lead in like what facets of this chapter you want to talk about and feel free to touch upon several. So I guess the opening question is, how can a student know if they would flourish in a math program or if it would prepare them for a professional life they'll find gratifying.
2: Yeah, so I think there's there's two things here. There's one is about sort of a student's motivation and is this what they want to do? And does this feel like a good fit for their career plans? And there's also, do they have the, the capacity to be able to do well and thrive on the course? And those are both questions about individuals. So of course it's, it's impossible to give a, an answer for individuals, but some things to think about, I guess. Um, in terms of the, will I enjoy it? Um, is it a good fit for my career path? My experience is that a lot of math students at university don't have a particular career path in mind, and I guess the first thing I would to say is that's okay. I think um I mean I remember being seventeen and my my teacher saying, "Well, before you submit this application, I need to know that you have a career plan." Vicky kind of thinks "Wow oh, gosh, I don't really have a career plan you." <laughs> I don't think I've ever had a career plan, to be honest. Um, So some people have a really clear sense of what they would like to do, and they can see that maths will be a good fit for that, and that's great, but I think it's also completely fine to embark on this because you're interested in mathematics, you're interested in um, the kind of options that you can see that you could do, the the theoretical study or the applications in particular directions. Maybe you've been doing reasonably well at at school, which gives you some confidence, and One of the lovely things about maths is that you can do it and know that at the end of your degree there will be lots of doors with interesting things behind them that are opening to you. So even if you don't at the start of your degree know what you want to do, there are lots of opportunities for maths graduates and I know that's not always apparent because there aren't so many job adverts in the world that involve the word mathematician um, and so it's not completely clear if you if you study law you can be a lawyer if you study engineering you could be an engineer and if you study medicine you could be a doctor and if you study maths you could be a mathematician well actually you can do loads of things and my students over the long time I've been teaching, have gone on to do all sorts of things. So they've gone into um, coding and software. They've gone into finance in various different ways. Um, But they've also gone into data analytics for environmental consultancies and teaching and social work and... I know people with maths degrees who have gone into law, who have gone into medicine. So um, the skills that you learn through doing a maths degree, it's not just about knowing maths content. It's not just about being able to solve a specific type of problem. It's much more those general skills of being able to solve problems in principle, being able to um, analyse large quantities of data, being able to understand situations analytically and logically, being able to articulate complicated ideas and, I think sometimes people who have strengths in those directions don't recognize how valuable they are because they assume everybody can do those things. But actually, all the evidence is that those are really useful for employers. So um, I guess that's the is it a good fit with my career plan kind of thing. Well, maybe if you have a specific career, you can check. And if not, know that there are lots of things you can do. Um, But one of the things that I really wanted to address was that there are lots of concerns that people understandably have about would I fit in in a maths degree, I guess. I mean, there's the sort of am I am I good enough at maths kind of question. But there's also the do people who look like me do maths in whatever that way may be. And I just wanted to kind of address those because I think those things are really important. And. And the answer is yes. If you you enjoy maths, if you're making good progress, you can find a programme that will be a good fit for you. So, you know, you find the programme that will um, be open to you with the grades that you're getting and so on. There's a variety of them out there and so on. Um, Historically, when we talk about the history of mathematics, it's very easy for the conversation about the history of mathematics to be very white, a male and European centric, frankly. Um, But it's the 21st century, maths is more diverse than that now. And it's becoming more diverse. So I think it's really important that people know that perhaps the first 10 famous mathematicians of history you could name might all fit a certain profile. But actually, maths now is super international and really diverse in all sorts of ways. And that's something that I care about a lot. So I I wouldn't want students to think, oh, I wouldn't fit in. It's about finding the program that, that
1: fits your strengths and interests, and you will belong. Yeah, I really much appreciate that, that point. Your next chapter focuses on f- what follows the completion of a mathematics degree. Uh, you talk in particular about employability and about job satisfaction. And so I'd like to get you to talk about your main takeaways here. Uh, listeners might not be surprised to learn that math graduates stack up well. This is a point that's made um, even to like very early on in, in my undergraduate education. I learned that mathematicians and statisticians uh, make loads of money and are very satisfied with their with their jobs. Um, but I hope you could also talk about any potential drawbacks you see to pursuing such a degree.
2: Um, I think, if it's something that you're interested in, and it's going to feel like an interesting way of spending three or four years, I'm not sure what the drawbacks would be. I mean, it's a big investment of time, and is potentially a big investment of money, depending on where in the world you are and how the university education is, is financed and so on. Um, so it depends what you're looking to get out of it. But the drawbacks there would be, you know, it wasn't the right program for you, It actually, you've discovered that this isn't what you want to spend your time doing, I guess. Um, From a career point of view, I think it's important to think about the fact that different people want to get different things out of their careers. So for some people they would like to, earn enough money that they can lead a certain kind of lifestyle I guess for some people maybe that's less of a priority but their work-life balance is very important or where they are geographically is very important or they want flexible hours or they want to be working in a particular sector or they want a job that's going to be benefiting society or helping other people there are lots of different priorities and I guess which career people choose they should be sort of informed by that I think rather than feeling that they are being funneled in a particular direction I think sometimes students think Oh, I'm doing a maths degree, therefore, I must do the following thing afterwards. Oh, I must go and work in finance. Well, some people would really like to go and work in finance, and that fits with their kind of priorities, and that's great, but that's not for everybody. So I guess it's just important to be thinking maybe relatively early on, even if you don't have a fixed plan, just be thinking: what are the options? What can I do with a maths degree? What are these different career kind of opportunities? And And also learning a bit about yourself and what are your priorities. I mean, I think we all have to kind of go through this process of working out what what matters to me. And it's okay to have different answers to that. But somehow you also have to spend time figuring it out.
1: A theme that came out of this chapter for me was that employability is not only about the availability of jobs called mathematician, but the flexibility one has in the job market to pursue different kinds of work in different kinds of sectors. So I wonder if you could comment a bit more on that. And additionally, to tie this back to your point earlier about the fact that not so many job opening openings are labeled mathematician. And why should this not be a a dissuasion from pursuing that that course of study?
2: I think one of the nice things about the maths, a maths degree is that it, it leaves you flexibly equipped to make different decisions both immediately after your degree about where you might go but also later on in life. I remember having a, a conversation with uh, somebody who had done one thing after their maths degree for 10 years or something and then really changed direction quite a lot and felt strongly that their degree had been part of enabling them to do that because the skills that they'd learned along the way gave them the flexibility to be able to adapt. So because maths isn't so specifically targeted on one particular job, I guess, it sort of leaves people with that versatility. And sometimes there are specific degrees that might take you towards a particular kind of vocational career path. But actually, a maths degree will take you to that same place, but give you more options along the way. I think it can be quite hard I mean, some people have a really clear sense of their career plan. And I've had students arrive at university knowing exactly what they're going to do. And three years later, that's what they've done. But I've also had students change their mind quite a lot just because they've discovered, oh, I didn't know mathematical biology existed. I didn't know that I could use maths to study climate change or whatever it may be. And, oh, actually, I would, having discovered that, I would like to go and do this other thing, which is much easier to do having done the maths degree than having done The sort of specific focus degree. So, of course, what that means is that for some career paths, you then would do further training after your degree, perhaps alongside your job. Um, So various roles in finance, um, actuarial work. So that's all about managing risk and insurance and pensions and so on. You might then do some professional qualifications alongside work and employers are kind of set up to do that. But I think sometimes employers prefer people who have the maths degree and then do the the, specific professional training afterwards rather than the specific degree all the way through, because those people are going to have more opportunities. I guess I was aware writing the book that I was writing a book for some readers who might be 16 or 17 now, who are still going to be in their working lives in 50 years' time. And... I don't know what the world of work is going to look like in 50 years time. But when I look back over the last 50 years, the opportunities for maths graduates have changed massively. And the rise of computing, the rise of huge data sets and the importance of data science, the growth we see now of machine learning and artificial intelligence. All of these kind of things want people who know about maths and statistics and If they want people who know about maths and statistics now, I bet they will in 50 years' time, but in ways that I can't even imagine yet. So I guess one thing to have in mind is a career is a really long time. And who knows how that might evolve? So you want something that's going to leave you able to seize on those opportunities when they come potentially.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: You're tying into the way I sort of thought of the book as separated into parts one and part two. So we just concluded a discussion of part one, which focuses largely on the programs themselves, what they entail and what they can set you up for. But part two, you seem to focus on the broader landscape of practicing mathematicians, the work they do and the culture they form. And it seems like a nice segue into getting into um, that, the first chapter of that part where you survey applications of some key mathematical ideas in a, a variety of settings. I wanted to focus on one of them here, which was linear algebra. You describe in particular its application to image compression, which I'm sure a lot of people are not familiar with. And so I'd be glad for you to talk through that. Um, but in addition to its relevance to our digital world, uh, I thought this was a great use case because it elicits some of the ways that mathematical abstraction, that core uh, part of mathematics that we don't get so much exposure to in high school and, uh, and and education before that, comes to the aid of real-world problem solving.
2: Yeah, thanks. I, I really wanted to have some of this in the book because exactly this issue that we, we talked about earlier on, that the variety of maths that gets studied at university is so much broader than what people experience at school. But... Maths being maths, we have loads of terminology. And and so it can actually be quite hard when you look at a university prospectus or a website, you know, listing what the courses are or something to actually think, well, what, what is this about? And why might it be interesting? And all of those kind of things, because often the words don't make sense until you've studied the course. So ideally a well-written pres- website or prospectus will decipher some of that. But I wanted to just take the time to do some of those things. And a linear algebra felt to me like a priority because it's so just utterly vital to, to so much of mathematics, but also beyond that. Um, so the image of J uh, of image, <coughs> the, the example of image compression, and um, I guess I was sort of thinking about the JPEG image file. We, we're busy taking photos on our phones that might get saved as JPEGs and so on. Um, but we don't necessarily look under the bonnet to find out what's happening there we we drive the car but we we don't need to know what's going on beneath but what's going on beneath i think is fascinating and as you say this this idea of abstraction and and it's just kind of feels quite surprising in a way that some of these tools can be used for this so so roughly speaking um i take a photo on my phone that's some huge amount of data because I've got lots and lots of pixels and for each of them it needs to record kind of how bright it is and what the colors are and all of that kind of thing. And if I'm then going to go put that on social media or share that with my friends, I want that to be a smaller file, but I also want it to still look like a picture of my cat or whatever it may be. Um, so JPEG is one of these um, protocols that gets used for image compression. So if you imagine taking your array of pixels, your, your kind of output from your photo, you could sort of assign a number to each picture. And if you just think about a black and white photo, that sort of simplifies some of the, the technical complexity. So you, you sort of record a number to record from a scale from white through gray to black. Where is this? That's a lot of numbers. And the idea of JPEG image compression is, well, we'd like to forget some of these numbers. But if we just take those numbers and forget some of them, then all of a sudden you won't be able to tell that my cat has a stripe or some important detail like that. So what happens is you take that array of numbers, which is called a matrix. There's a kind of jargon, sort of rectangular grid of numbers. And you transform it so that instead of each number representing one pixel on the original photo, each number captures some slightly different information about it. Um, and the way that JPEG does it is sort of one number captures just the overall average greyness of the picture. And then there are some numbers that sort of subdivide in a kind of checkerboard fashion, increasingly detailed. So these numbers are, you add and subtract these checkerboards on top of each other. The net effect of this is that you end up with a rectangular array of numbers, the same size as you started with, but some of them more important than others. And you can forget the unimportant ones because they're kind of just noise at the level of what the human eye can see. You sort of can't tell. It doesn't really matter. Was this a zero or a one? Well, I'm not going to be able to tell. So you transform. It's called change of basis in the, the linear algebra context. And then you can just forget a bunch of these numbers. So now you have fewer numbers to remember. That's how it's compressed. You've got less data to store and then you can reconstruct the image from that. I don't know whether that's too much detail or not enough detail. Now. It sounded
1: just about right <laughs> okay. for your target readership and for the target audience.
2: So the the idea of linear algebra and kind of matrices, this change of basis, when when I teach it to my students, it feels quite abstract. But actually, the underlying philosophy is. I think makes a lot of sense. It's well, I've got this information recorded in a complicated way. What I want to do is transform it in such a way that I can see where the important stuff is and where the unimportant stuff is, and then potentially I don't need to remember so much. And that kind of change of basis idea comes up lots, and, and linear algebra comes up all over the place. We, we talked about mentioned data science and, and this this thing called principal component analysis, which just gets used lots now. We, we are very good at gathering large volumes of data and kind of catching up in a way on being able to process it. So um, genomics researchers, um, people looking at supermarket loyalty card data, all sorts of things will have these kind of arrays of data. And then you want to know where is the important data in all of this? What are the themes? What are the patterns? And tools from linear algebra are immensely powerful for doing that. Also, computers are really good at implementing these things, which is good. So you don't have to crunch calculations by hand. That is not what the mathematician is doing in this job. We are not taking massive arrays of data and crunching them by hand. We are inventing clever ways and then getting computers to do the crunching for us, which is an excellent division of labor.
1: (laughs) Uh, Again, well said. Uh, so, this leads into um, an- another chapter you focus on applications, but applications that are emerging or even, I want to say prospective, I've lost the word, speculative. And so, I wanted to ask if there's one or two you think were especially interesting that you'd like to talk about.
2: It's hard to choose. It was hard to choose to pin them down for the book, let alone to pick a couple now. But, yeah, let me, let me think about a couple. Um, I really like the kidney transplant application because I think conceptually it makes a lot of sense what's going on. And this can and has changed people's lives. Um, So um, in the UK, I don't know how it works in in the US or elsewhere, I'm afraid, but I know that in the UK we have uh, a living kidney donor scheme um so a healthy person has two kidneys they can donate one kidney without there being too many implications for themselves and potentially that kidney can be life changing or life saving indeed for somebody else um so if a kidney patient comes along who's who needs a kidney donation they might be able to ask their family their friends people they know whether one of them would have a kidney they would be willing to donate but there has to be a match between the tissue and the um, in order for the transplant to work, the kidney has to be a good match. So there's a scenario where uh, you have a person who needs a kidney and you have their friend or family member who's willing to donate a kidney, but the tissues don't match. But if you imagine you've got two pairs like that, so two patients in need of kidneys and two of their friends or family willing to donate, maybe the friend can't donate to their friend, but they could swap. (laughs) So you have two willing donors and two patients, maybe they can just swap. Or you can imagine having three pairs and doing a more complicated kind of arrangement, that that sort of principle. Um, And the idea is, well, you have a big database of these are the kidney patients, these are the willing donors, can we organize some matches here so as to maximize the number of successful kidney transplants that happen? And the volume of data involved in trying to work out oh, if we do this match, would that then be leads to a cycle of three or swap this pelt? It's too big to do by hand. So um, a a team of uh, science, mathematical people, sort of operational researchers came up with an algorithm for being able to do this quickly, for being able to look at the database and go, well, based on the database, these are the matches we recommend. These are the transplants we recommend you go ahead and do. So a few times a year, they can go through the database, run the software, find the matches, change people's lives. I I think that's just an extraordinary example of the power of mathematics, operational research, computer science to make people's lives better, (laughs) I guess.
1: And the introduction of medical practice and healthcare raises another, or brings us to another topic that you comment on towards the end of this chapter, the ethical issues faced by present day mathematicians. I feel that students of my generation were underexposed to this topic, and so I'd like to devote a question to it. Could you say, in part, or first, whether you see this as a truly new challenge? Um, And to the degree that it is, what students should know about the ethical responsibilities they would bear as professional mathematicians?
2: I think as far as I can tell, ethics in maths hasn't been talked about very much historically. And I mean, I'm in my thirties. I'm not that old, but we weren't really having these conversations when I was a student that I remember. And you don't have to go back very far into the past to find mathematicians proudly boasting about their rather abstract theoretical work having no possible negative practical implications. And I'm afraid they're just wrong. I mean, history has shown they were wrong. the consequences of the work that mathematicians do are important for the real world and they can be enormously powerful in the context of medicine and healthcare, in the context of finance, in the context of climate change. I mean, the, the big issues that are facing society today, mathematicians can contribute to those and we can make a real change for the good, but we can also develop tools that can be used in harmful ways. And I think we have to be aware of that. And I'm not going to pretend that I have all or possibly any of the answers here. I feel like I'm relatively new to trying to understand this area myself, and I have mathematician colleagues who are much further along that path than I am. But I think it is something that we have to be mindful of, the fact that what mathematicians do doesn't happen in a vacuum. Even, I mean, some mathematicians are doing things in a very applied way, but even mathematicians who are thinking theoretically in a kind of blue-skies mathematics way, we're not immune from these ethical implications. We might develop an algorithm or a technique for analysing data or whatever it may be that others can then go on and use. And we should be aware of that and thinking about what could the consequences of that be, because historically they have been used in really damaging ways, damaging wide groups of people, damaging specific groups of people, which is really problematic. So I think already... If you go into certain career paths with your mathematics background, you might have to do some ethical training as part of that, sort of tailored to your specific context. But I'm not going to be at all surprised to see more ethics training coming into mathematics undergraduate programs over the next few years. And for me, I don't think that's about me saying to my students, well, this is right and this is wrong. I think I think that would be wrong in many ways. I, I, it's not about me saying you should work in this industry or you shouldn't, or you should work for this employer or you shouldn't, or you should do this bit of maths or you shouldn't. I think it's about giving students an awareness of these issues and the sort of tools that they need to think about. Am I comfortable in doing this? Uh, okay, so this organization seems good, but am I comfortable with doing this role within this organization? Am I comfortable with the fact that if I prove this theorem, that might have these implications? And I guess, I think the mathematics community as a whole, I, uh, my sense is that we're going to see more of that over the coming years. And it sounds like maybe you, you feel similarly. I don't want to put words in your mouth.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of forced to feel similarly because I ended up working in a college of medicine. While it's not a direct component of my research, um, I am... I try myself to consider the ethical implications of the work I do, but I also try to um, find ways of doing work that addresses ethical problems that face the rest of the country to the extent that I can. Um, But yeah, it it certainly has become more visible in the applied math circles that I follow. And I hope with you, I think that that is a harbinger of a much greater ethical or conversation around the ethics of mathematics that's arising in, in university programs too. So let me jump to the last chapter uh, where you survey some key areas in pure mathematics uh, as well uh, which i thought was interesting some of the aesthetic sensibilities of its culture you mentioned earlier the proud the pride with which some pure mathematicians might have or might still uh, claim that their work has no practical implications but to set aside um, that element i want to ask what you see as um, the major themes in fundamental maths and i thought they came out especially well in what I'm not sure to call other than the friends and strangers at a party problem.
2: Yeah, I I love this problem. Um, I really enjoyed writing this chapter. I, I, I got to pick some of my favorite nuggets of mathematics, I guess, uh, to be able to share, um, having picked favorite applications earlier on, it was, it was a a treat to be able to write all of these chapters. Um, so this, the, the problem you mentioned, um, is, um, it's one of those problems that has that flavour for me of it's not so hard to understand what the problem is about, but then the ideas that come into answering it can be quite surprising and maybe even quite complex in, in some contexts. So um, the, the maybe sort of most familiar version of the problem, the sort of smallest problem we normally talk about is you imagine you're at a party with some number of people. And each two people either are friends with each other or are not friends with each other. This is a nice ideally idealized world with no social complexities of someone thinking they're friends and the other person thinking they're not friends. So everybody is, each pair of people are either friends or not friends. And you've got these people at the party, and you want to know: can I find three people who are all friends with each other or all don't know each other? And it turns out if you have five people at a party, it's possible for that not to be the case you can have five people and i'm i'm, I'm waving my hands which doesn't work on a podcast because i'm imagining these people as as dots and i'm drawing lines between these people as maybe a solid line if they're friends and a dashed line if they don't know each other and if you have five people you can draw some solid lines and some dashed lines to represent this in such a way that there's no triangle, there's no solid triangle of friends who all know each other, and there's no dashed triangle of people who don't know each other.
1: A very elegant image, actually. This is the this is a regular pentagon of solid lines of friendships, with um, the remaining five sides forming a, yeah, path. Sort of a pentagram uh, thing inside. A pentagram through the interior with the, with dashed lines,
2: right? Yes, you can even draw it in a kind of appealing way, exactly. Um, but it turns out if you have six people. And you try to draw in these solid lines and these dash lines, no matter how you do it, you're forced to have a solid triangle of three people who will know each other or a dash triangle of three people who will don't know each other. and it, It's kind of extraordinary somehow that this happens with just six people. And something changes between five and six, and why is that? And and there's a beautiful argument. I can't avoid the aesthetic language. There's a beautiful argument for why, if you have six people, you always have one of these triangles. And the beautiful argument is not you draw all possible configurations of solid and dashed lines between six people and check. That would not be beautiful at all. That would be horrible and boring and painful and unenlightening. There is a beautiful argument um, that describes this. This is a sort of branch of maths called Ramsey theory. And then you say, well, what if I want to have four people who all know each other or all not friends or five people or whatever? And, and you suddenly find you're in the world of unsolved research problems quite quickly. How many people do I need to have this? Well, we don't know the answers for larger groups of people. It's, it's kind of extraordinary that you can go from a problem where you can understand the problem and you can understand the solution if you sit, you know, somebody explains it to you and you sit and think about it a little bit. It's a really comprehensible solution for three people who all know each other or don't. And you don't have to go very much further and you're suddenly in the world of unsolved research. It's kind of extraordinary. And I guess I, it was really important to me to include some pure maths. I think maths is really important for the power of its applications and the diversity of its applications in lots and lots of different subjects. But also pure mathematics is really important too. And it's really important just because. It's really important because we are humans and we are curious and we want to know the answer. And it's also really important because you never know where these things are going to find applications. And there are all sorts of examples in the history of maths of applications of ideas that came decades or even centuries earlier as curiosity-driven research. So I wanted to showcase some of these examples of beautiful um, intriguing ideas that we can be curious and playful and creative and all of those kind of things, just because, as well as ideas that are powerful with immediate applications.
1: I sometimes wonder why mathematics isn't seen more as a bridge between the sciences and the humanities, or sometimes put into a humanities uh, umbrella rather than a sciences one. I, just the I, reasons I, you describe. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I spent quite a bit of time doing maths craft things. Um, It's kind of a sideline I have in knitting. And I did a project with buttons the other day, making some buttons and then doing things with them because it just seems to exhibit the creativity and playfulness that I see even when I'm doing the pen and paper kind of mathematics and not the knitting of buttons kind of mathematics. But I know that not everybody has the opportunity to experience the creativity and play of pen and paper mathematics. And that makes me sad because... It is creative, and it is playful, and it is beautiful.
1: And so to wind down the content of your book, suppose a reader, and this is based on some of your remarks in the conclusion, is interested in a math degree or a credentialing program and keen to set themselves up for a positive experience. What should they do?
2: Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think finding the right program for you, that's a really important thing to do, so do your homework there. Um, but apart from that, I think practice doing hard maths problems, play with maths. You don't have to spend every waking minute doing maths. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that in order to do a maths degree, you have to be somebody who is kind of completely obsessed about maths. But the way you get better at solving hard maths problems is by practicing solving hard maths problems, not by just being someone who's good at it. This is my experience of my own journey through mathematics and of watching students. And when I say solving hard maths problems, I don't mean like the Riemann hypothesis, a spectacular unsolved problem in mathematics. I mean, a problem that you look at and don't immediately know how to do. So if somebody gives you a problem and they give you some reason to think that you know the tools to do it, maybe it's from a, a competition aimed at people at your stage or your teacher gives you a problem or something and you've got all the tools in your toolkit, but you're not sure which tools to use. Or maybe you have to formulate the problem carefully because it's more of a modelling type problem or whatever it may be. You know, Give it a go and... Um, So I think practicing solving hard maths problems is a really good thing to do. And also talk to people and work with other people on your maths, collaborate. I think maths, for many people, maths at school can feel quite a solitary thing that it's sort of about, can you by yourself do this thing? But my observation of the way that maths works beyond school, a university in academia, but also an industry and everywhere. That's not how it is. It's not about people shutting themselves away by themselves and doing it. It's about working together and pooling ideas to see what you can come up with. So, So talk to people and if you're finding something hard, ask for help and help somebody else out in return. And those things all seem to me good ways to thrive once you're at university, as well as preparing for it. So it's about getting the information, but also asking for people and reaching out
1: and helping other people out when you have the opportunity. Now, one thing, one theme I detected in your book that we haven't touched on yet, and I wanted to ask about, that showed up a few, th- a few times. You made the point to a reader that math needs you. What do you mean by this?
2: I think mathematics as a discipline needs people with lots of different strengths and areas of uh, experience and areas of interest. So. Um, all of the evidence that I've seen is that a diversity of perspectives leads to more progress. So I would love us to have a more diverse group of students studying maths at university who will then go on to use those skills, whether in a mathematical career or a non-mathematical career, but the the other skills that they've developed along the way will be important. So I think Maths can look forbidding and off-putting, and I don't want it to. Maths should be reaching out and inviting people in and um, making the most of everything that our students have to offer.
1: So let me ask one of my winding down questions, which is if you can recommend another piece of scholarship or perhaps media that you think makes a good companion to yours.
2: Um, I think... There are various different things out there. So there are some really good maths careers websites, for example. So if you are trying to explore those, what are my options if I do a maths degree kind of questions, there are some really good information. Um, Within the UK, there's a a maths careers website. I know that the maths societies in the US have great resources on careers out there and, and profiles of people who are doing these things and information. So I think those kind of resources can be really helpful. And I also think there's so much online now about... The variety of mathematical topics, whether that's sort of text-based or video. So um, the file YouTube channel is, is really well known for showing lots of different cool bits of maths. Um, there's a, an online maths magazine called plus.maths.org, which um, is based in the UK, but really international. That's a really good way of getting an idea of kind of cutting-edge mathematical research in lots of different areas. Um, there's a really great um, maths magazine called Chalk Dust, which is Um, a little bit quirkier maybe, a little bit left field. So there's lots out there now, um, lots of different YouTube channels that the students can watch if they want to find out more about what might it be like to study these subjects. Um, Back in the the olden days when I was a student and the internet was only just getting going, we definitely didn't have these things because we were still cranking handles to send emails. Um, But I think that the variety of content out there now so that you can get a taste of what are these different subjects? So if you see something in the book and you think, oh, I'd like to know more about that, you will be
1: able to find a kind of accessible introduction. And so how about your own ongoing work, Uh, educational, outreach, what are you working on now? Uh, right now, I am very busy preparing for the return of my students to Oxford. They
2: will be back next week. and We've got a new term coming, and I'm really excited about that. But I also have uh, a little bit more preparation that I need to take care of before they get there. Um, I've got a couple more mathematics craft projects that are bubbling away in the pipeline. Those take quite a long time. They sort of uh, go along in the background. And, yeah, I'm just playing around with some ideas for another
1: book. But watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> this space will be watched. Uh, when the book manifests, I hope you'll consider coming back to the podcast to discuss it. I'd be delighted to. Uh, I've been talking with Vicki Neal, author of Why Study Mathematics, published by London Publishing Partnership in 2020. Vicki, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
2: Thank you very much. And thanks for such an interesting discussion.